Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's The Wonky Show. We're talking public perceptions of HE, international recruitment, and student sex education. It's all coming up. You know, as a, as a feminist, I I've, suppose I've, I've spent a long time thinking that things are pretty linear, you know, that things are just getting better and better. So to see some of those data around um, uh, men and women thinking that there's too much being talked about uh, misogyny and too much being done, it is really weird. Uh, and you've only got to look at what, you know, the success of Andrew Tate's. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education, news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, and joining me to judge the mood of the HE Nation this week, it's three fabulous guests as always. In Chester, we've got Helena Sutherland, Deputy Vice-Chancellor and Provost at the University of Chester. Helen, you're hired for the week, please. Oh, well, that was really easy because it's got to be the launch of the reviewed professional standards framework on Tuesday with a fabulous live online launch event and even a blog in Wonky. Yes, you can read more about that on wonky.com. Uh, in Camberwell, it's Johnny Rich, Chief Exec of the Engineering Professors Council and other things. Uh, Johnny, you're hired of the week. I'm going to say my daughter's 14th birthday. I can't believe she's 14. It seems like about three wow. years ago that she was born into the middle of a snowstorm. And now you have a teenager. Yep, two. Two teenagers. Uh, yeah, God good luck. Me. Um, and in sunny Liverpool, it's James Coe, Wonky's associate editor. James, your heart of the week, please. So in other data-related news, my daughter Olive turned one month this week, but I would like to go for Newcastle United getting to Wembley for the first time since 1999. So yes, we start the week with uh, this new polling into public perceptions of HE. Helen, walk us through it. Yeah, so we have polling from Public First on how the English public views higher education. So it covers all sorts of areas such as student maintenance support, the value of higher education, and it was conducted last August by, uh, well, commissioned by UPP and uh, HEPI. So there's some really interesting results, and a lot of it is really positive, especially about things like the contribution that universities make to the UK economy of whole. There are some more worrying findings around the cost of living and how we support students and the priority that people put on that. Um, but I think the more worrying stuff is that 26% of uh, people think that fewer people should be going to university. And 22% of respondents agreed with the statement, a university degree is a waste of time, which is 32% in 18 to 24-year-olds. That, oh, that's a worry for me. Um, the stuff there on freedom of speech. Um, but it, it's, you know, it's great to see generally high levels of public support for, for our universities. But that thing about the cost of living and the lack of support from public to make students a priority group, which is understandable in the current climate, but we all need to think really hard about how we support students best because um, they need to be financially sustainable enough to succeed. Um, there's support for the maintenance grant, which I think has received a lot of publicity recently, and we need to make that uh, more widely available. 
I suppose for me, one of the most depressing findings is just how few people have visited universities. A lot of people saying they only very rarely or never knowingly visit or even apparently engaged with a university. So many of us think of ourselves as anchor institutions, regional universities. So there's clearly a lot more we need to do there to welcome people onto the campus and make our activity more visible to them. Right, fascinating stuff. Johnny, um, Jim pulled out uh, some of the polling data and how it splits by age is really interesting, isn't it? And gives us some other um, possibly slightly concerning takeaways. Yeah, I... I was, I mean, there are lots of things about this research that's really interesting. Um, one of the most interesting is the fact that it is a survey. And um, if surveys only ever tell us what people think, not, not the truth of the matter. So, for example, um, one, of the, one of the things that struck me was that um, 71% think that the cost of living crisis will be a deterrent to students. Um, but their numbers over the past 35 years um, suggest otherwise, because during that time, we've gone from a situation where basically there were full or partial grants for more than two thirds of students down to a point where um, there are no grants, there are loans. I'm talking in England here, no grants, fee loans and fees. And yet the proportion of young people going into higher education has gone up nearly sevenfold over that time. So I mean, there is some research out there. Um, Claire Callender's research, I think, is the best. I'm suggesting that there is a deterrent effect as costs go up. Um, and it seems that the, re the reason this doesn't show in the numbers is that that deterrent effect is drowned out by ever-increasing demand. However, it's the poorest, the most precarious in society, those whose lives could be most transformed by free higher education. They become the hardened they become hardened in their belief that such an opportunity isn't for the likes of them. That's that talking of perceptions of HE, that's the one we need to change the most. Mm, yeah. And, and James, I mean, it, it, there, there's, there is, I guess, a hidden message in this, isn't there about, about how universities are going to have to reach out beyond the, beyond its borders in, in possibly a much bigger way. Yeah. So Mark, I agree with you. And, you know, I think there's, there's a few bits in this that it's difficult to disaggregate some of the overlapping phenomena. And what I think I was most surprised by in that question of how might universities work differently is that there's a lot more skepticism from younger people about the value of a degree, even though they are more likely to be the recipients of degree because the way that higher education has changed over time. And I'm always struck that, and I'm sure I've mentioned this on the podcast before, when, when I wrote my, of course, best-selling book, The New University, Local Solutions to Global Prices, still available. <laughs> available available all good bookshops. And, and some pretty poor ones as well, one year after their publication. You know, a family member said to me, they said, Jim, the problem with universities are they're too busy casting Shakespeare to do any proper teaching. And, you know, this sort of cultural divide comes out, but once you ask people, actually, do you think universities are doing more or less to protect sort of cultural engagement or freedom of speech, whatever you want to call it, the response is much more divided. So when, what might universities do differently? It is probably, oddly enough, demonstrating the value to the students they have today as a means of uh, assuring their position into the future. They are the generation who are, of course, getting monarch again, the teaching from them. So there's a battle to be won with them, I think. Yeah, I think there's a really important point here about the cultural value that's perceived by people of going to university and though though some people see the value as very high and therefore are 
very willing to invest large sums of money in in having a life at university and a life after university. Some people don't recognize that value. doesn't mean that value won't exist, but therefore their willingness to invest in it is much lower. That I would take from that. If I'm as a policymaker, if I were one, I would be saying, if I want people to go to university, and I do because it's good for the country, I need to make it better value for those people, or I need to put the value up front, um, make it less expensive for them to to make that choice to go to university. And uh, whereas what we actually have is a system where it's most expensive for the poorest to go to university because of living costs. I agree with you, Johnny, but I suppose my, my question would be, how do you square the circle in the report that the only way to make university better value for money is to spend more money on it through taxpayers' funding? Because, of course, the only other solution then is to get bigger all the time, and there is not, a, in the survey data here, there is not a majority of people who want universities to get bigger. So how do you simultaneously have a system which delivers better value for students, which means almost certainly more expensive, while squaring the circle with a public that don't want universities to get bigger? that at the moment is the early source of income for those universities. Okay, two, two things. One, you'll never find me arguing against investment in education. Second, uh, so so yes, I think we should spend more. Um, and also there are other ways to do it. Uh, see my best-selling report for HEPI on fairer funding. I think one thing that universities can do and one thing we're doing here at Chester is making it really clear to students what their curriculum and timetable will look like when they when they get here so that they can we we can demonstrate to to students and their you know their family members that help them make decisions that they will be able to earn while they learn you know that they will be able to get a job um, in Chester in and around Chester they'll have time to do that and they will still have time to study and engage with um, university life not the you know the the part of this I think um is that this is a survey of public perceptions. And we have to remember that what the public perceive as university is very heavily coloured by a lot of government rhetoric and a lot of the, the media rhetoric that's been around for the last few years about, you know, snowflakes cancelling things. Um, and that stereotypical view that there are 18-year-olds who go away from home to just basically have a great life and do a bit of work if they really have to. Whereas, you know, if you showed somebody a, a mature student with a couple of small children training to be a nurse and said, do you think she needs more help? The answer would probably be yes. So part of the perception of universities, um, this results is is coloured by that perception that people have. Um, whereas many of our universities now, that type of student is in the minority and it's much more likely to be a mature student, somebody who's training into a profession, um, somebody who's working and, and, and holding down a job whilst also studying. So so I think we need to do more um, to, to present that view of universities into, into the public uh, arena. Yeah, the, the, the poll shows, doesn't it, that it's, it's, I mean, it's experience of, of, of higher education um, that, that counts more than anything uh towards your 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 perceptions of of it so which makes complete sense when you uh when you frame it like that but um yeah johnny johnny you want to come in yeah i, I wanted to say i think helen's hit on a re- another really important finding here that um 90 percent, i think it was 90 percent of respondents didn't put students in one of their top three priorities for extra support and um, then i think the top one was people on minimum wage they're not recognising that students are the working poor. 
In fact, they're not just the working poor, they're the double working poor, because most of them have jobs and study, and um, they're not being paid to do that studying. Uh, you know, looking at people on minimum wage, uh, they, they look lucky to many students, in that most students are not on minimum or at best on minimum wage for the work that they're for the paid work they're doing and the unpaid work they're doing as a student, they're actually having to pay for. So um, on an hourly rate, students aren't even close to the minimum wage um, because they're not paid to study. Their income is only lent to them for the, for their study work. And to add insult, they're charged a fee for the privilege of um, being subjected to this penury. I think I think you're right, John. I suppose what you know just expand that a bit further is interesting to me is that you're completely correct on those statistics that only 10% respondents put students among the top three groups they would help. But then simultaneously, two-thirds of respondents think men and grants should be reintroduced, and 60% thought they should rise with inflation. So it's like, we think this group, yes, does need help or deserves additional help, but if you put it in a hierarchy of priorities, they fall fairly far down the list. And I wonder if that is some of that effect that Helen describes of people Sometimes, and you describe as well, not distinguishing between actually you can be on minimum wage and be a student and be a caregiver and occupy these multiple identities all at once. But this plays out in politics, doesn't it, in, in exactly the same way? I mean, when you weigh up students versus other sections of the population, then students rarely get a look in. And, you know, you, you, could, you could argue that the government, particularly this government, is kind of reflecting public opinion in, in that respect. Well, I, I think one of the best pieces I've read about um, changing student, uh, sorry, changing the public's perception of students in universities was written by um, one Mark Leach in Wonky about five, six years ago. What, what was that called? It was basically... No one took any notice. Yeah, the enemy within. The enemy within. Uh, I, I thoroughly recommend people go back and take a look at that because I think, from what I remember, a lot of it still stands true. There's the, the old chestnut about 26% um, of people think that fewer people should be going to university. And, and you know, I, I learned... To, something from Nick Hillman once that I so I always respond to that because people are always saying too many people are going to university and I always respond with saying okay who shouldn't be going then you know because everybody thinks their children should be going but somebody else's children should be doing an apprenticeship or something technical and not go to university we have a, a chronic shortage of teachers nurses doctors engineers you know just to name a few so it's it's hard to argue that we need fewer of those and I think again it's this public perception because many universities, if not most now, are, are running lots and lots of courses that are purely vocational, either apprenticeships, higher and degree apprenticeships, or things like medical programs, nursing, teaching, which lead directly to um, a profession or engineering, you know, the sort of skill shortages. So it's really hard to argue that we need fewer of those sorts of people in our society of graduates from those areas. So again, it's about that public perception and, and are we able to accurately portray what a, a modern university is like in the face of the, the sort of media and, and government portrayals. I, th I think on that, Helen, like the report shows that effectively the more practically facing you are as a student or the programme you're studying, the more sympathy that you'll gather and the more support that you'll gather. And I do wonder, in the face of having 800 shortage of doctors, 30,000 shortage of nurses, one of the ways as higher education advocates we've lost the argument is by not thinking about those programs as vocational and practical, as if they exist over here somewhere else, when in fact the shortage of those programs, uh, those places rather, is being driven by the fact that those students can't undertake the practical elements of their courses. 
it's it's the same issue, but we somehow put in a separate box of here. And I think that's part of that reframing winning public argument out there by trying to think of those slightly differently. Hmm. Very interesting. Okay, uh, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, I'm Daniel Keyes from IOP Publishing. And this week on Wonky, I've been blogging about the importance of sharing research data openly. The public availability of research data is important because it enables anyone to learn from, reproduce and build upon that knowledge. And trust in science is strengthened when scientific claims are fully open to scrutiny. A growing proportion of researchers want science to be more open, and many national research funding agencies are expecting the work they fund to be fully accessible. Academic journals increasingly now require transparency about where and how research data can be accessed, and my own organisation will now publish information about any barriers preventing public sharing. Many reasons still uh, prevent all data from being made public, especially sensitive personal data. But I think wider understanding of the re- uh, remaining obstacles will help identify solutions to enable much more data to be made publicly available in future. Now, there's new heaps of data out that tells us an awful lot about the current state of the sector. Johnny, talk us through it. Well, looking at the international student recruitment data, which is um, from 2021 intake, uh, the big news is that on Brexit's third birthday, the number of EU students studying in the UK has dropped by more than half. Um, it's particularly bad amongst undergraduates. The the 2020 data, so the year before, the number from EU states who were starting a degree was 37,000. Uh, in this data, one year later, it was barely a third of that. It was 13,000. So um, obviously, the change in the fee arrangements and um, financial support probably explains a large proportion of this. But one thing that it's disturbing to note is that we've gone from being a centre of pan-European academic excellence to um, a situation where the UK now has more students from Nigeria than from the EU. Um, Obviously, I've nothing against students from Nigeria. Welcome them. But it's a shame that we can't attract both, frankly. Um, More positively, though, the number of international students overall has been on a steep and steady rise, um, up from uh, five years ago, it was um, just over a quarter of a million international students starting courses here, and now it's over 380,000 in 2021. Uh, And this was reported um, in many of the, what what we might call the usual suspect media, um, as... um, foreigners stealing our students' places. Um, it's utter myth. Uh, the numbers show that it's uh, that's an utter myth because the UK student numbers have also risen over that time by nearly 100,000. So um, it's probably more accurate to say that UK student places have been made possible by rising number of uh, the rising number of international students. But never let it be said that little things like accuracy or good sense bother the Home Secretary when it comes to immigration. She's been... But, uh, I'd, like, I'd like to say there's a, a, a better quality of fact on, on Wolfie when it comes to those kind of... Exactly. Uh, but, it, but our friend Suella Braverman has been flying kites again. They're getting lower, these kites, which is worrying, about limiting dependence and post-work visas to make the UK as unattractive as possible to the very 
um, people, the brightest and best, as she would call them, who, who might help solve those skills and productivity problems that we were talking about on the last topic. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot here, isn't there? James, the, the, we've talked a bit about the Nigerian question um, uh, a bit on the podcast before, and we've been covering it on the site because it, it is one of these um, really big shifts that's happening in the sector, but also one of those ones that people don't really want to talk about because it's it's raising it's raising questions in the home office yeah quite and you know international student recruitment trends will naturally change over time you know at one point it wouldn't have been the case that china was the biggest exporter of students to the uk before that was the european union now we're seeing the sort of growth of nigeria india elsewhere as visa regimes change i think one of the things that i was most concerned to see of this um this report and this data release mark was the decline in postgraduate students from the european union who've been coming to the UK. And I, I think it's interesting for two reasons, that because the postgraduate fees are in theory uncapped, it doesn't hold the same argument as undergraduate fees, that there should be this great drop-off. So to me, that suggests that it is a combination of wider visa regulations about how Britain is perceived in the world. But I think the second part, and this was made in um, The Guardian, that when we are talking about the UK out in the world, and I wrote a piece uh, for the blog called The United Kingdom Alone, our ability to exercise soft power, our sort of, you know, ability to win partners over as other countries to work with in the future is damaged by us not being able to work with our closest trade neighbours. <clears throat> and when I think about Horizon, actually having a reliable pipeline of postgraduate students in the UK who may go back into the European Union and become the science leaders of the future is going to be really important for whatever future relationship we have. And that clearly seems to be damaged. Do people turn around and say, well, actually, it doesn't really matter where students come from, as long as one, we have, you know, a number of international students, we get the fee income, we have a multicultural experience on campus. But I think the UK's strength is that it's always been able to attract a diversity of students. And it would be a terrible shame if that were lost. I, th I think that is a really important point. And I, and I suppose the decline in EU students after Brexit is probably the least surprising data point of the week, isn't it? You know, if it, do you want to pay £9,000 or do you want to pay £38,000 or what have you, it's, a, it's, it's not a surprising outcome. That drop-off in PGT does indicate all those things that James was just talking about, about our loss of um, attractiveness. So I think the mix does make um, an important difference. And I'm old enough to remember the last Nigerian student boom, which actually fell off a cliff when there was a devaluation of the Nigerian currency, probably, I don't know, maybe about 10 years ago. So so students coming to us do, you know, there are trends that, that vary over time, but it's got to be right that we have a, a diverse population on our campuses that where students can really learn from each other. And, you know, I think the economic benefits um, in general to the economy and to our local areas is particularly well known and understood. And I expect it's even well accepted at that national policy level. But as we as we know, this is this is much more about an emotional response, isn't it? And and feeding a narrative that um, that international students uh, all universities are either up to something and and it all needs to be stopped. So there is this real this real sort of um, two pronged um, approach to this, where I, I suspect national policymakers really fully understand the value that international students bring, but they want to kind of be seen to be trying to stop them as well. Helen picks up, up a really important point about 
booms in these trends, booms and busts, because, um, and these can be down to economic changes, like the change of an exchange rate suddenly making something cheaper or more expensive. Uh, but it's also political. Uh, the, there was um, a boom in Russian students a while back that then then dropped off um, because of political reasons. And I think it's worth pointing out that all of these um, increases and falls in, in Russian or R Nigerian students, those are small compared to the growing reliance um, financially for many institutions on Chinese students who currently make up a quarter of the entire international student body. So if I were a vice chancellor, given the political tensions with um, China, uh, um, I mean, which may not be especially bad at the moment, but it would only take a small change for things, a small change such as Taiwan to, to for things suddenly to head in a very different direction. And then we may find that Chinese students are told, sorry, you're not going to the UK. Um, and if I were a vice chancellor, given those political tensions, and the, I, I think I would find some space for that in my risk register, to put it that way. <laughs> yes. Just to reassure Johnny that those sorts of things do go on. And I think that, the, I mean, just politically, India... Um, has taken off when the post-study work, uh, post work visa was reintroduced because that really suits the sort of family patterns and the and the work patterns and the educate and pa education patterns of Indian students. So, so these things are very cyclical, but I really do agree about that risk of, and, about and China. Actually, it, I think it's also worth pointing out that, that the best way of preventing those sudden drop-offs is, is welcoming international students. Because the more we have international students, the more we have that soft power, the more we have those international conversations going on, the more we, we reach a common accord with other countries and we can see things from each other's point of views and we can get to a point where, where we can find agreement. And, you know, I'm talking about world peace and love, which seems like a really, really nice thing to discuss at this time. Um, just, just on that journey as well, I suppose what can often get lost when we think about the changing student numbers and the international mix is the experience of the students once they arrive in the UK. And I suspect, you know, or I suppose I like to think that the least, the less maliciously motivated end of international students are taking UK places and impacting experiences is a recognition that because UK universities have got very large very quickly, there are groups of students who are having less than ideal experiences in some places. So I think if we want to make the case as a sector for continuing to recruit large numbers of international students, if we want to increase the diversity of that student cohort, we have to also think how are we projecting a student experience around the world and how are we supporting students once they arrive here. Uh, we'll put all the analysis of the data and our visualizations in the show notes. Hi, it's Jim from the team here with news of the secret life of students. Back for its fourth year, we're going to take the opportunity to get real about students, bringing together sector leaders and managers, as well as student leaders and student union managers, to get an accurate and unvarnished picture of the student condition in 2023, so we can work out how to respond rather than just react. Shifting from a surface level understanding of student satisfaction with services to a deeper understanding of their motivations, ambitions and lives can be hugely rewarding and important both for them and those supporting them. 
It's also vital in an age that seems quick to assume, judge and condemn students rather than listen, understand and act on their concerns. So at the event, we'll be asking questions like, what are students doing when they're not in the classroom? Where is the line between their desire to collaborate and regulations that ban collusion? Is it true they're not prepared to debate and discuss controversial issues? Why do they rate assessment and feedback so badly on the NSS? And how many are confident about being real students, let alone what comes next? On the day, we'll feature key findings into the student experience from the past year. We'll launch exciting new research into the student learning experience beyond the classroom. And we'll launch our new Student Insights platform, Belong, a one-key group GTI initiative. And we'll share the first findings from its research. It's an essential event for anyone working on policy and delivery for students. That's the secret life of students. London, March the 14th. We'd love to see you there. Go to wonky.com forward slash events and book now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, as readers of the Wookiee Daily will know, the government has dropped a massive new higher education bill on an unsuspecting world. Uh, our associate editor, David Kernan, is here to walk you through it. Hello. We've got a new higher education bill. The Lifelong Learning Higher Education Fee Limits Bill got its first reading on Wednesday in the House of Commons, and this was followed immediately by publication on the parliamentary website. It's quite a technical bill, and correspondingly a bit light on policy, although this latter may be rectified if the rumours of a forthcoming response to that LLE consultation from nearly a year ago are true. I've gotten into the detail of the bill on the site. What we're looking at here, in essence, is a new system of undergraduate fee limits based on the idea of a credit. That's the standard CATS or QAA credit framework idea of 10 notional hours of learning. And although this is the clear policy intention, it's not actually in the bill itself that we're going to standardise on this. Under the new system, the Secretary of State will be able to set a fee limit per credit, and this can be scaled up to fit any course of any size. As now, different values will be assignable for stuff like placement years and study abroad. But the bill realises that not every course can be modular, so there will also be a default credit rate, most likely 360 credits for an honours degree, but again, this isn't on the face of the bill, to support loans for these courses. And there is also a maximum credit value to avoid people stuffing courses with extra learning to raise prices. Although the policy intention is to allow the LLE dream to become reality, this bill also gives ministers a lot of direct power over the size and shape of higher education. There are safeguards, but perhaps not enough for me to feel confident that this will come to pass as easily as the government might like. There's a really interesting new survey about students and sex. Uh, James, do you know where the Nubis is? 
No, Mark, despite my best efforts to find it, it in fact does not exist. Um, so, as Solomon Pepper would say, let's talk about sex, Mark Leach. So, <laughs> um, news out today, 45% of male university students would feel confident labelling the nubis on a diagram of the female reproductive system. That confidence, of course, is misplaced, as the nubis does not exist. Now, what is interesting about this report that Jim has covered on the site is that when we are looking at sexual activity of students, almost four in ten said, and rising to half of Russell Group students, that they feel judged by their peers um, on their sexual activity. 34% of students said they are not confident in knowing what resources or people they can approach if they experience sexual harassment, which rises to 42% of females. And I think most shockingly of all, um, there are... 26% of students think too little is being done to tackle misogyny on campus, but 22% think too much is being done. And that is, yeah, enormously surprising, disappointing to see for me. I think just as we get into this, two things that I was thinking about as I was reading The Courage and Jim's piece. One is that when I think about my own education, I started school, primary school in 1997, and then I went to a Catholic secondary school. I don't think I ever had any significant sexual education. But then by the time I went to university, it seemed almost as if you picked up by osmosis, rather than being this formal sort of learning place about actually here's what's uh, going on. And that seems to bear around today's data. I don't know if you found similarly, Mark, or you found anything surprising when you were reading it. Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm interested to hear from Helen about whether, you know, this, this, the, 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 this reflects what you experience amongst students and you, you think they're, does it reflect their attitudes at Chester? Well, I think I think it's not surprising that young people, um, as they as they move from school to university, are discovering, you know, their sexuality and and relationships and all of that. And I think that's as old as time, isn't it? Um, you, you we tend to imagine that students are better informed now because they have full access to a whole range of resources, shall we say, on the internet from an early age. But it just goes to show that um, you can't take these sorts of things for granted and, and factual accuracy um, around these things. So um, I, don't, I certainly don't want us to start thinking about having to introduce sex education into universities, although um, there are lots of things that we are doing now that I wouldn't have thought we would be doing when I started my career, so never say never. But I think what is really important are some of the um, things that come out of this. So, you know, as a, as a feminist, I I've, suppose I've, I've spent a long time thinking that things are pretty linear, you know, that things are just getting better and better. So to see some of those data around... Um, uh, men and women thinking that there's too much being talked about uh, misogyny and too much being done. Yeah, really it is really, really weird. weird. Um, and you've only got to look at what, you know, the success of Andrew Tate uh, recently. And, you know, th thankfully, uh, Greta Thunberg took him down. But, you know, before that, um, he he was enormously successful. He set up this um uh, this university with hundreds of people registered, and they're young people. You know, they're not they're not people, uh, sort of old dinosaurs. So it just does that. This did really remind me that you've got to constantly be vigilant and reinvent how you tackle these issues and what you do about these issues for for new, you know, different types of students coming through. The stats though don't tell us um, why why they think too much is being done about misogyny um and so just to remind ourselves of the stats it was 22 percent who think 
too much is being done about misogyny, but it's 26% amongst males. And, you know, those males, it could be that they're all rampant wannabe Andrew Tates, um, or it could be that they just don't think there's much of a problem and why waste time? I mean, I'm not saying that's the right attitude either, or it could be that they think there is a problem, but they don't think it's for universities to preach to them about this kind of stuff. Now, I think all three positions are wrong, um, but on the last of those three positions, I think there is some sense in the argument that over-18s are not kids, and it's wrong to treat them as such. But the reason that I think that argument doesn't wash in this case is that... I don't think it's nannying to combat ignorance or, or to argue that we need to respect other people. I don't think that's, we can call that nannying. Of course, we should teach these things to children, but we should, we should also go through every day, try to model good values and to promote them uh, with everyone that we encounter. And, uh, and we should be running campaigns around this. I don't think it necessarily calls for sex education, but we should be running campaigns. Um, especially where there are systemic issues. Um, and we should have rules and we should have laws, as we do, to outlaw those problems. And I mean, I do think that this is a brilliant opportunity for student unions to get involved. I think this, this is one of the things that student unions do brilliantly, probably better than universities themselves. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that um, I agree. I, I've, you know, I've always been of the view that university students are adults, they're over 18. But I think what we've seen in the last few years is an increasing emphasis on universities being responsible for things that they weren't previously responsible for. So things like investigating accusations of sexual violence. So it has become our business. And this sort of information is really useful. And Johnny's right that it's not, you know, we haven't got you know, there is more nuanced information that we could have. But it's really important that we understand how our students are coming into us so that we can, our policies and our communications can reflect that in the things that we are required to deal with. I, could, I couldn't agree more, Alan. And I, I think two things occurred to me as we're chatting that the survey results pose the question of whose responsibility is it to fill, you know, these knowledge gaps, these ignorance, this misunderstanding. And, you know, there's sort of two areas to this. There is the formal education of which only 25% of students said they left school with no knowledge gaps in sex education. And then there's what Jim talks about, this social norming of how do we give students the ability, the resources, the support through societies, through clubs, through their engagements with each other to talk about, you know, what's acceptable and what isn't. I think the other part that I'm struck by is this link between schooling, colleges and universities. And when you talk on about actually we're doing more stuff that we didn't before, it's part of university's wider social responsibility when we're engaging with schools in the way we would with widening participation to talk about the experiences of students when they get to us at 18 plus and the gaps they are coming in with and how we may address that wider social responsibility as well as education gaps. Yeah, it's, it's not something I've seen much discussion, but I'd be fascinated to, to hear about it. It's worth universities looking to schools, particularly in the previous in the last few couple of months what they've been doing about andrew tate because there's been some really exceptional stuff published in terms of guidance for um talking to boys about andrew tate and, and the, his popularity and trying to trying to combat that messaging without um 
without saying, look, this is all just wrong because that doesn't work and has been shown not to work. But you need you need to tackle it more cleverly. And I think I think that could inform some brilliant campaigns on university campuses. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget you can get the latest show automatically when it's out. Just search for The Wonky Show wherever you get your podcasts. And to find out about how we can keep you and your organisation ahead of everything that's going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscriptions. So thanks very much to Helen, Johnny and James and our news editor Michael Salmon who makes the show happen. We'll be back next week. Jim, Jim, uh, Jim Dickinson's much better at this. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.